Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to These Interesting Times, Surviving 2020 in the Quad Cities, a literary anthology edited by Misty Urban and published by the Midwest Writing Center Press in Rock Island, Illinois. I'm Frank Mullen, and this is Cancel Culture, a pan diary, which appears in the These Interesting Times anthology published by MWC Press. January is usually a month of misery, particularly here in Illinois, our motto, Frigidum et Snowblower. But the first month of 2020 brings no depression, no post-Christmas letdown. Wherever you live, this is going to be a great year. If you're a hardcore Democrat who sips white wine while writing checks to national public radio, you're thrilled. We're going to impeach the worst president in American history. If you're a rabid Republican who chugs through six-packs while gorging on Fox News, you're acting angry while secretly cheering. The Democrats are preparing to commit suicide by trying and failing to impeach the greatest president in American history. And if you pay no attention to politics, you're the happiest person on the planet. Bartender, around for the house and make them all doubles. This is going to be a great year. Sure, we hear now and then about some virus thingy in China, but what's the big deal? Every day, the media provides stories about the devaluation of the dollar against the Spanish peseta, or an uprising of uppity Middle Eastern women who want driver's licenses. Such foreign froth blows in one ear and out the other, without disturbing the three-pound lump of complacency that is the American brain. While we're glued to our flat-screen coverage of the impeachment and Senate trials, that thingy in China doesn't sit still. It grows and spreads until it's the lead story on the nightly news. We're learning words like coronavirus and pandemic. They sound foreign and distant, like melting ice caps, the sort of thing that might maybe, possibly, affect us just a tiny bit someday in some other century. In February, those thingies are marching toward our borders, and no wall will stop them. Small Midwestern towns specialize in gossip, good, clean American gossip, the kind that almost qualifies as a public service. Your local paper will tell you what is happening, corn roast, where, the Legion Hall, and when, Thursday afternoon at 5, unless Larry forgets to open the building again, and we have to send someone down to the cozy corner to get the key. But the paper will rarely tell you the why behind the news. We're roasting corn because Larry's ability as a barbecue chef are no better than his talent at remembering to unlock buildings. In late March, the governor of Illinois announces plans to close everything down and quarantine us all. 
A few days before the shutdown date, my town's overstressed gossip chain blows a gasket and can't keep up with the details. It'll just last a few days. We'll be in isolation for a week. Actually, it's going to be more like two weeks. As a pessimist, I consider the two-week lockdown most likely. Fortunately, I'm plugged into the information hub, the rumor locus of small-town gossip, the library. I used to work in our local library and learned that there is very little difference between the jobs of librarian and rumor mill operator. Fifteen volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica won't provide you with as much useful information as a woman checking out the latest Nora Roberts novel. The day before shutdown, I stop by the library and ask Judy what's what. We used to work together, and she's a straight shooter with the gossip gun. She tells me that a state employee has just left with a carton of detective stories, telling her that the statewide quarantine will last even longer than the two-week projection. I sweep through the shelves and fill my own carton of books. I spent a good portion of my life smoking and drinking like the sailor I was. As a result, I have to deal with more medical problems than a St. Louis hospital emergency room on Saturday night. I'm a prime candidate for catching the coronavirus and responding poorly to it. After consulting with Joe, my wife and retired health professional, we decide to take the quarantine seriously. I'll stay home except for necessary appointments, and Joe will go out only for vital errands. My April days and nights at home give me time to ponder something all recovering alcoholics know about. Acceptance. Life is full of things you hate, unfair things you don't deserve. They may be character-building lessons from God or just random roadblocks on the highway. Either way, to fight unfairness is to wage war against reality without armor, weapon, or hope. Whatever it is, you don't have to like it. You just have to accept it. I keep this in mind as it becomes obvious that we're all going to spend a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months, barricaded in our fortresses. Surprisingly, I go a step further and look on the bright side. I'm unaccustomed to the sight. Usually, I let problems sit undisturbed, dark side up, so they can fester and decay. But I breathe in the fairy dust of optimism that has blown in from parts unknown. I see the impending isolation less as punishment than as opportunity. Oh, the novels you'll write, Frank, the songs you'll compose, the stories, the memoirs, the poems, the prose. Others will sulk and complain, but not you. So shift into gear, Frank, you've so much to do. I decide to start with a letter to my local newspaper, lauding the communities in my area for their clear, principled response to the emergency. My town shut down its restaurants even before the governor's closure orders. Local pastors have canceled in-person church services. Joe tells me everyone in town is wearing masks. We're all doing our part, making the small sacrifices that will get us through. However, I am a mullen. Mullins are widely known as people of the idea, strong on good intentions but weak on the follow-through. 
I never get around to congratulating rural Illinois on its unity. I will soon be glad of this. When I'm not writing trilogies or symphonies, I'm reading. That last day in the library, I checked out the entire Elvis Cole and Joe Pike detective series. Elvis is a nice guy who gets along with everyone. Joe is a less nice guy who gets what he wants by kicking butt. I've spent my life as an Elvis, but I can see Joe in my future. I moved through the series faster than I'd expected. I seem to read faster when my reading is not interrupted by things that are not reading. I also brought home The Stand. Decades ago, I read this, Stephen King's 800-page opus. Now, I have the time to read the original version, the one his publisher made him cut in half so the book wouldn't weigh 30 pounds. It's about a deadly virus that governments cannot control, that kills whomever it contacts, that has no cure, that causes disunity and war among its survivors. Reading this novel during the worst public health crisis in a century turns out to be as sensible as my preteen habit of watching Saturday night horror movies right before bedtime. I dreamed of the fangs of Dracula and woke to the howls of werewolves. Now I'm dreaming of death, destruction, and a stark evil from which no one can escape. Sometimes I get so involved in the story that I forget whether I'm reading a novel or the Chicago Tribune. Speaking of newspapers, my mullen laziness has spared me from the embarrassment I would have suffered if I'd written that letter in praise of our patriotic willingness to spit in the face of adversity. I'm learning that the we're all in this together slogan is giving way to an alternate battle cry, every man for himself. People are tired of wearing masks. Social distancing, which once required we stay six feet away from one another, has been redefined. Just stay a spatula's length away from others and nobody complains. Stores have put arrows on their floors, directing shoppers to move about the aisles without endangering one another. Sadly, some shoppers ignore this guidance. So, do you follow the arrows? or go with the anti-arrow flow. Deciding whether or not to follow society's laws and norms is not a clear matter of knowing right from wrong. If you've ever driven on I-80 west of the Quad Cities, when the 18-wheelers are running behind schedule, you know the quandary. Is it better to disregard the speed limit and drive at Mach 3 like everybody else so you don't get squashed under a Peterbilt 337? Or to obey the law? drive the speed limit, and get squashed under a Peterbilt 337. Navigating the paper goods aisle at Walmart presents a similar question. I belong to the Navy Musicians Association and spend a week every June at a raucous reunion of shipmates who once served in Navy bands. June has joined December as a festive time for me to gather with friends for merriment and music. The members have been wondering, can a hundred aging former sailors safely spend a week together in a hotel, telling sea stories, playing clarinets, and drinking beer while wearing masks and staying six feet away from one another? 
I run the organization's website, so it will be my job to let everyone know whether this ship is going to sail or spend the last week of June in dry dock. The board of directors decides to cancel, so I spread the word. Yo, shipmates, remember that week we look forward to all year long? Those precious days that remind us of the best years of our lives? That reunion that makes us feel young and useful again? Not gonna happen, ha ha ha. Sure, I phrase it more gracefully, but that's what I feel like I'm saying. Every summer, I spend a few days at a writing workshop in Iowa City. I sign up for the Iowa Summer Writing Festival during the winter, so I'll have plenty of time to plan whatever novel or self-pitying memoir I'm planning to inflict on my unwary peers. For the next few months, I look forward to a week in June with my old Navy buddies and a week in July with my writing community. But this year, everything is canceled, postponed, rescheduled, or terminated. We live by a simple rule of thumb. If it's enjoyable, entertaining, or enriching, it's not happening. The Summer Writing Festival is canceled. It's the right thing, I know, but it's a blow. When my reunion was called off, I felt like Christmas had been canceled. Now it seems like New Year's Eve has been abolished, too. I don't know why I even wondered if they'd have the festival. Some things are too obvious to merit a second thought. In 2003, my first year in Illinois, a snowstorm shut things down for days. Every morning, the guy on the radio skipped the traditional list of school closings. He simply said, if you can hear my voice, your school is closed. The term cancel culture has come to describe efforts to silence our opponents to erase them from society. It's everywhere during this fractious year as we debate solutions to our national health crisis, economic collapse, and political divisions. Now, we've pushed past the boundaries of cancel culture. We're canceling culture altogether. Sometimes you do the canceling yourself. I love vocal groups and have been a fan of the four freshmen since I was in high school. Joe and I have been to their concerts on the East Coast and throughout the Midwest. Months ago, before the 2020 handbasket departed for Hades, we bought tickets for an August show in Indiana. Now, with the concert only weeks away, I'm sure it will be canceled. The four freshmen's fan base skews toward the elderly. The kids who bought the freshmen's new 78 RPM records in 1948 are still flocking to their shows. They arrive at concerts in nursing home buses. Like me, they're prime candidates for viral infection. But the show is not called off. The concert hall promises to present it as safely as social distancing, masks, and half-empty auditoriums will allow. I know we can't go. I'm as susceptible to infection as any other geezer, more so than many. I have breathing problems on my best days. An afternoon of masked indoor suffocation holds all the attractions of waterboarding. But still, honey, sweetie pie, it's the four freshmen. Couldn't we just... No, I never actually say it. It's juvenile. It's headbanging against the concrete wall of reality. I agreed to cancel our tickets and stay home. Once I accept the decision, I feel fine. Very little feels fine this year, and, perversely, one of the finest feelings stems from giving up some fun. My acquiescence may reek of face-saving. You can't fire me because I quit. 
but it brings me a little peace. And I need peace. We're not through with 2020, and the parade of disappointments has just begun. The September storm has knocked the power out. The living room is dark, except for a faint glow in the window. A peek outside shows that the utility pole across the street is burning, the flames spreading to a neighboring tree. The tree's branches reach over the roof of the neighbor's house. I wonder if the Browns are aware of the danger. The golden rule whispers in my ear. Frank, it says, if a tree overhanging your house burst into flames, wouldn't you want a neighbor to call you with the news? The moral jury finds for the affirmative, and I decide to call the Browns. This noble act is interrupted when I note the flames are now spreading along the power lines. I'm a pretty good warrior. I can find calamities where others see nothing but sunshine and daisies. I can invent impossible chains of events that defy physics, but flaming wires are something new to me, something even I wouldn't dream up. I quickly forget my resolve to warn the Browns about the flames from hell because they're now heading to the next utility pole whose lines run across the street to my house. My home is about to become the set of a disaster movie. You'll scream, you'll cry, you'll shriek with terror as you cringe before the flaming wires that set your house on fire. The Browns rush out onto the street. Obviously, someone else has embraced the Christian duty that I shirked, having called not only the Browns, but the power company. Emergency vehicles are pouring into the block, lending their flashing emergency lights to the pyrotechnics above. As the workers set about containing the danger, Mr. and Mrs. Brown cross the street to my yard to get out of their way. Joe runs outside to talk with them. I follow and run into another neighbor, Dick, who is photographing the Holocaust. Joe sympathizes with the Browns while I look over Dick's shoulder as he shows me the striking photos he's already taken with his new tablet. The blaze is extinguished, no harm is done, and we all return to our homes. In the kitchen, Joe and I turn to each other as we simultaneously realize we've just been hanging out with people without wearing masks. Everybody was barefaced. Joe was chatting with the Browns while I was standing a socially undistanced six inches from Dick and his tablet. We are hypocrites, guilty of ignoring safety procedures, the sin we routinely accuse others of committing. I think we're supposed to throw stones at each other, or something like that. It's been a long time since I've been to Bible study. Of course, an emergency was unfolding. If someone reaches into your car, grabs your baby, and speeds away, you don't check your seatbelt and adjust the rear-view mirror before taking off in pursuit. It's a good excuse, but not a great one. Most people, unlike me spend every day dealing with the inconvenience of masks, six-foot safe distances, closed schools, empty bank accounts, and lost jobs. We're all managing as best as we can. Stress is everywhere, every day, not just in my front yard on a stormy night. I had my share of haircuts in the Navy. Nowadays, I visit the barber once a year. Just a trim, please, a little off the top. I do this in the spring, just before the reunion with my Navy buddies. 
My goal is to torture them with the fact that, yes, my hair may be a dirty gray, and I may have a bald spot the size of a medium pizza, but it's hair, and unlike some people, I've still got it. But I didn't get that annual haircut this year. Aside from my daily walks, I leave the house only to see doctors, dentists, and librarians. It's now October, and my hair has not felt the snip of the scissors in a year and a half. I have a ponytail and wear a red bandana to keep the hair out of my eyes, mouth, and dinner. Unlike Joe, I don't have to look at it. The only time I see myself is when I look in the bathroom mirror and see Willie Nelson staring back at me. He looks like he lost his suitcase in a Nashville bus station, hasn't slept in three days, and can't figure out how he wound up in someone's bathroom in Illinois. Last Monday morning, I finished breakfast, put down my coffee cup, and asked myself what should I wear this week. Autumn, for me, is Harry Potter. I reread the entire series, Alohomora, Achio Broomstick. Then, Joe and I drive to Davenport, Iowa, to see one of the Harry Potter movies, with the soundtrack performed live by a symphony orchestra. Most of the audience are muggles, normal humans, but some of us dress as residents of the wizarding world. I go as the black-clad Professor Snape. He's the worst guy in the world until, spoiler alert, you find out that his most despicable acts were part of a long battle he fought, cloaked in anonymity, his nobility a deep secret. I'm kind of like Professor Snape, except the noble part hasn't kicked in yet. The concert, of course, is cancelled. You can wave wands and turn enemies into frogs, but no one yet knows the spell that will turn a concert hall into a safe place during a pandemic. It's also the season for our annual viewing of The Polar Express on the big screen in 3D. Cancelled. Did you really have to ask? As the year ends, Americans are dying by the hundreds of thousands. One out of 15 residents of my county has been infected with the coronavirus, and the infection rate continues to grow. Yet many of us are convinced there isn't really a coronavirus. Some say masks don't work, and they won't take the vaccine we've been waiting for. The rights to drink in bars and infect whomever you want, rights not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution, have somehow insinuated themselves into the American way of life. I'm less forgiving of my fellow Americans than I was a few months ago, the night I spent 30 maskless seconds in my front yard with the neighbors. Since March, I've been once to the eye doctor, once to the dentist, and maybe three times to the library. The Stand is no longer a Stephen King novel. It's a way of life. The equanimity with which I once accepted life's unfairness is withering. I'm the guy doing the right thing, taking precautions to stay uninfected and to avoid endangering other people. I hardly go anywhere and wear a mask when I do. I stay six feet away from you unless you're cleaning my teeth, collecting my overdue fines, or kissing me goodnight. Yet I pay a significant price, endless isolation, because so many others insist on exercising their God-given rights to ignore science, common sense, and simple decency. The end is in sight, everyone says. Well, maybe. We've got the vaccine. Yay, team. 
but how long will it take to distribute it? What happens when many people refuse to take it? When will we get back to normal? Do we ever want to get back to normal? What was normal, anyway? Meanwhile, just like April, May, and every month since, everything is cancelled. I, we, need something to bring a spot of cheer to life. Well, 2020 began with an impeachment. That was exciting, wasn't it? Yeah. But what are the chances of that happening again? Thank you for listening to These Interesting Times. This audio presentation is made possible by a partnership between WVIK, Quad Cities NPR, and the Midwest Writing Center in Rock Island, Illinois. Support for this project comes from the Illinois State Library.